Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the past 20 years, the way people communicate has undergone the biggest revolution since the printing press. But how might we be talking in 50 years, and what language will we be speaking? And how will we know if we're getting the information and entertainment we need? I'm Megan Whelan, and this is Great Ideas. Last season, we looked at the revolutionary ideas of the past. This time round, we're asking what the great ideas of the future will be. We'll look at leisure and families and work. This episode, though, the future of communication. I'm joined by three knowledgeable people from AUT, and I've asked them to tell us their favourite sound. Hi, I'm Greg Treadwell. I'm a senior lecturer in journalism within the School of Communication Studies, and my favourite sound is the tui just before dawn. Hi, my name's Dean Mahuta. I'm a senior researcher at Te Pukaria National Māori Language Institute, and my favourite sound is the crashing waves on the beach. Kia ora. I'm Kate Jones. I'm a lecturer in AUT's Business and Law School. I teach marketing communications and my favourite sound is the mōpok at night in the bush. Two birds. Very New Zealand and very Radio New Zealand. Kia ora. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's start with a very easy question. In 50 years, how are we going to be talking to each other? Is there going to be a new technology come along? I'm going to look. I'm looking at you, Greg, so I'm going to make you answer this. Yeah, uh, I, I'm going to pick that there is a new technology. Uh, it's not certainly not going to be a phone. I think that personally <clears throat> there will be instant messaging available holographically. I think that we'll have an opportunity either to communicate between in the physical airspace between two people holographically or we'll be able to just do it on a wall or a table or a surface. I I think that's the next stage. But to be honest, I don't think that's a huge leap from where we are. And I think that the really big leap is probably going to come after that and I can't see that far. The really big leap? The really big leap is going to be away from visual communication at all from messaging, but I know one of the things we were asked to think about was whether there'd be telepathy as a communication field, and and I just can't see that. That's just anything's possible, but I can't see that being invented. It isn't a thing you can invent. It's a thing that that science fiction's told us either exists or doesn't exist, and I, I just can't see it being invented because that would require such a change to our brains. So, Mark, this is Mark Zuckerberg's suggestion. Yeah, he yeah. he said that we wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't be using our phones. We'd be talking telepathy, and I think the idea is that it wouldn't so much be our brains communicating with another person's brain. It would be a computer chip in our head communicating with a computer chip in your head. Kate, does that sound like a if not feasible, a, a, a desirable uh, thing to have happen? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. I think it's definitely feasible um, because already if we think back many decades, we're not fr- uh, scared of hip transplants, for example, and we're not scared of cochlear implants to help people hear better. So I could see an implant to help us communicate. I'm not so sure yet if that could be a one-on-one communication But I could see an implant potentially helping us communicate, for example, with the shopping mall. 
and we may in fact just do that from home. So the mall might communicate with us, tell us about some really cool things that we might want to know about or buy, have our personal preferences loaded, and we might be encouraged to shop however we're going to shop. So it's <laughs> you're laughing, Megan. No, is it well, desirable? I'm uh, exactly. Um, is, is that that's tremendously invasive consumer behaviour? Is what I'm thinking. Is yes. you know, it's very capitalist, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But it's <laughs> we've just done the future of work. We've just been talking about that, and um, before that was the future of leisure, and and all of these things. This such upsides to some ideas. Like the idea of having a, a computer chip in your brain, if you were a stroke, someone who'd suffered from a stroke and yeah. mm. couldn't communicate anymore but your you, the, the chip in your brain could work, that's fantastic. If I'm a person with a computer chip in my brain and it's telling my partner everything I don't like about them, less fun. Less fun, yeah. So there could be some boundaries around that kind of thing and we would hope that we would be able to set those boundaries ourselves and have some control over that. And we can kind of do that already with social platforms so we can set our privacy settings as we want. The one thing that does happen with the social platforms, even with our privacy settings, is what we're doing, posting, showing and sharing, is monitored. And I don't think we're having many conversations about how we want that aspect of ourselves to be in the future and so perhaps that's one thing that the other two here might have a view on as well but that's certainly one thing that comes to my mind do we want them all to know all about every preference we have some of us might want that Dean do you want that I definitely I'm not for monitoring I suppose how we use it because there's you know that idea about invasion of privacy and all the things we do but I think from a te reo Māori perspective um, for me, no matter what new technologies are created, as long as it's in te reo Māori, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, to um, the importance of language in a society, because every time a language dies, part of that culture as well, it's dies with it. So I'm all for the moving of technology and whatever new platforms or new devices come up. But for me, it's as long as that's in te reo. And we're using that language. One of the things that social media especially has done is provide ways to protect te reo, especially, well not especially, but in this country. There are entire groups on Facebook that's all Mm. about speaking and uh, communicating Mm. in te reo. It's amazing. I think that's what's been a great thing about social media. It's that idea about connecting because a lot of our uh, communities are quite dispersed. And we've been using uh, social media to connect those people and make sure the language is also flowing between those communities. So um, it's definitely uh, a great tool and, you know, it breaks down that silo mentality that we all have. In 50 years, what language will we be speaking? Will we be speaking... English well, and Tereo, or for me, uh, I hope it's Tereo. Yeah, exactly. But or, or could there be um, a, a New Zealand language that was a combination of all of the languages? Like, do, do people's brain work that way? Can you can you filter seventeen different languages uh, and and sort of communicate in all of them at the same time? You might need a wee device mm. to help do that. That you can just put on yourself somewhere. Maybe it's a little something. It's called the Babel device. Yes. I was going to say the TARDIS. Yes. Um. Maybe we learn some kind of machine integrated language 
with our languages that we use now. That's possible I think as f- well. I think 50 years isn't very far away in terms no. of a language development, though. Mm. So, I mean, so if 200? You, well, 200. <laughs> let, let's start with 50, and I think yeah. we're going to be speaking English. But I really, really hope that Māori is not far behind in 50 years. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that social media also does. It's bringing more English content. I suppose that's the new tanifa that we're fighting in terms of Māori language revitalization is how do we now create like a household that has the Māori language living in there. So the idea is to also penetrate those areas where English is the dominant language and at least for Māori communities to put more te reo Māori in those areas on social media, using it mm-hmm. in your posts, mm-hmm. on YouTube, you know, mm-hmm. Instagram, all of those things. It's yeah. flooding the language just to get it out there a lot more. Just to normalise it. Eh? Yeah. Maybe that goes a step further too. And if you think about immersion, maybe we have a house where the surfaces of the house can speak to us in whatever language we choose. So we can speak to the house. The, the house speak to us. Wow. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And that, I think, it must be possible. Well, we know we've got the technologies to do that kind of thing because we can speak, be spoken to, for example, by Siri, the personal intelligent assistant. Why not a personal intelligent wall? Oh, well, there's no doubt that's that an as, assistant. We, as we come home and we Language open the garage door, yes. that will probably, you know, pour the gin and tonic in the future. <laughs> There'll be communication yeah. between things. There's no doubt yes. about it. Your fridge is already capable of yes. communicating. So yes. so I actually should be careful about saying that. I'm not quite sure that it's communi- communicating willfully in any way, but certainly the Internet of Things is a fast-growing thing. Communication between devices is definitely on the horizon and very soon if it's not already happening. Mm. And so maybe it's not the chip that you need and you don't need the chip in your head. Your fridge tells the supermarket what you need because yes, you've run out exactly. of mayonnaise and exactly. so it makes a shopping list and it's delivered to your house the next day the day that you run out of mayonnaise. It's frustrating, though, that it always seems to be about convenience. How about political progress <laughs> and justice? Um, very good question. So as a marketing person, convenience is one of the things that we keep saying to ourselves consumers want because we say consumers keep telling us this. So that kind of works on that level. But who decides what political progress might be and who decides what truthful justice is and how do we handle that when we're thinking about surfaces talking to us or communicating with us? And I guess that's where I get a bit stuck. Well, for Te Reo Māori, I think... uh for the Māori community, we have a hard time enough going to the bank and asking them to speak to us in Māori, mm. let alone like creating a device that has the ability to... Yeah, let's, let's know, work use, on the politicians use, before the fridges. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like the, talk about the convenience of turning up to my dairy and asking for, you know, I've got milk and bread in te reo and so I've got, it costs yeah. $10.50 or something in te reo and being able to speak whether they're, you know... Whoever's behind the desk, you know, and not even the politicians, just non-Tareo speakers. So whenever, yeah, but if the politicians it, decided to change this, they could, and they and and there are many examples around the world of indigenous languages being established, if you like, at various levels of education and uh, valued more than we appear to value Tareo Māori in New Zealand, which is crazy because I don't really know anybody who doesn't value it. I just think our politicians are holding us back horribly. Oftentimes, when we get reports saying 
call Megan Whelan a hoe at the end of their report. Yeah. I love we had it. A number I love of, it. We get a number of emails saying, what does that mean? And, and Look it up. Exactly. And part of the reason we do it is because there is an education thing there. I love saying it because it's more fun to say than this is Megan Whelan. Which well, it actually empowers weird. you. And it gives value to the use of, yeah, of the language outside. It, it? Yeah. Yeah. So you sort of talk about how would you envisage your fridge talking to you about politics? What a neat question. Because <laughs> what I'm thinking about is one of the things that, that social media, or, or it's not even social media, it's it's been happening for years. It's no, Robert Putman's book, Bowling Alone, that Tim yeah. Watkin has been talking to me about. He drew on evidence, including nearly 500,000 interviews over the last quarter century to show that we sign fewer petitions, we belong to fewer organisations that meet, we don't know our neighbours, we meet with families, less friends less frequently, and even socialise with our families less often. We're even bowling alone, so more Americans than ever are bowling but they bowl they don't bowl in leagues and so we don't know our neighbors we don't know our friends we don't join political parties we don't join sports clubs anymore and so is there an opportunity for technology in some way to bring us back to this idea of what is a a community what's our society yes i i think you've touched on one of the most important things about the future of communication and i think we have a theory going around these days that social media and the internet are driving us apart and into small echo chamber groups. It appears on the, on the surface to be obvious and true, but I'm going to suggest here that it has nothing to do with social media. It's about the cult of the individual, and ultimately the political road ahead of us is either going to lead to a concentration of that cult of the individual or perhaps the failure of that cult of the individual. It's not social media that's doing this to us. It's a tool with which you can do whatever you want. Uh, I'm much closer to some people because of social media than I would be without it already. I wonder if we mobilise differently, though, in terms of being community. So if I think about my students, for example, we mobilise ourselves in the lecture theatre in a very um, interactive way, and then we also mobilise ourselves later, after hours, if you like, on social media across a few platforms. So we're building quite a strong sense of community there, but we mobilise around different ideas. So that draws together, certainly what I see is that we're able to draw together a much more diverse group of people. That's different maybe than what we used to be like, say, 50 years ago. And I think that that in itself will probably grow. We mobilise really quickly around causes that we're really passionate about. We can see that. When something goes viral, it's not always a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing, you know, in terms of, yeah, the actual (laughs) cause that we're mobilising around. But I think that a lot of these platforms are giving us that massive ability to tap into kind of like-minded other people and their passions as well. That might be all right. This idea that there are communities that just have a space on Facebook where they haven't been allowed to have a space for some time. And um, you see that in Māori communities as well. Yeah, well, this was quite interesting talking about the loss of communities and I think Māori have been experiencing that for a long time now, especially that rural to urban drift, those years when a lot of our marae just, everyone moved to follow jobs, you know, so there was that huge loss of communities there and so for Māori that's hard because we have this sense of whakapapa, of connecting, we're a community-based people, so when we're separate, you wonder why we there are issues with cultural identity and things like that, so Social media has been able to, I suppose Māori have gone after it and used it to reconnect. And sometimes it's like, even if it's um, our home communities, marae, creating 
a group on Facebook and it's connecting with our um, relatives in Australia and home in the cities, reconnecting. And in some instances, people beginning to go back to those home communities because it's established that connection with everybody again. And I mean, you know, we talk about how our people used to live the village life because that's what we were. But you know, with social media, it's like our village has kind of changed a little bit. You know, it's more of a virtual one. Mm-hmm. I mean, because Māori, since the arrival of European Māori, have been open to connecting with new technologies. So I think this is a great uh, example of that, looking at the new technologies at social media and how it's used and using it to benefit our kaupapa. Mm-hmm. That's all a very delightfully rosy uh, view of the future because the internet can also be incredibly divisive. People can be mean and horrible and uh, it can be used to drive a wedge between people. Yes, the anonymity, difficult word to say, but if we're anonymous, then it's much easier to say stuff. Although... As a person who reads the Facebook comments for a living, I'm sometimes astounded at what people are willing to say uh, with their own name attached to it. Yeah, yeah, fair point as well. So maybe some of the barriers around communication just get relaxed because we're looking at using a technology platform. So, for example, we don't have the body language cues. So I can't see your face. I can't see that you're upset. I can just read those words. And that's kind of bothersome, I think, and I wonder whether or not the platforms that we've got available to us at the moment will have to change so we can reflect mood, not with a little icon or a little emoji, but an actual mood sensor. So I'm maybe I'm starting to say something and I might get a message that's not going to be um, a good thing to say to that person. You're creating hurt already. Or 50 people have already said that to this person so is stop. what you're going to say. I can't agree okay. uh, because I think the subtlety of communication, and I accept entirely what you're saying about yeah. online being communication, not having cues, not having... And, and maybe we really do need to do something about it, but... But I don't want a, I don't want a computer driven chair of the meeting. I don't want to be told that somebody's already heard that fifty times because maybe I think they need to hear it fifty one, or maybe I actually think no, you're you're misunderstanding me. I mean, ironically. But but giving you it wouldn't maybe it wouldn't stop you from sending the message, but it would but give it would you warn a, you about you the impact to to say. Yeah. Maybe have a think about your words or something like that, which which maybe now, again, sounds tremendously patronising. I can't but, yeah. bear the idea of a computer telling me to think about my words. Yeah, isn't that communication what communication is a human enterprise, and and computers are uh, peripheral to the aroha, the anger, the those things are human too. Sure. If you were at my house and we were having a party and someone had said something, even if someone had said something that was like horribly offensive, I don't, I don't mind the idea of a chair to the conversation, but not you just a computer don't want it to be a chair. Computer. Yeah. Okay, Dean, you were going to say something. <laughs> no, I was just like the whole time while everyone was talking about, and you're right, like that whole keyboard warrior. Everyone's safe behind the screen inside their home when no one can come and kind of confront them, so they can say anything. But I'm like of the idea, like we we can't give people like technological ways out of checking their own manners almost just so to speak so for example on some of the um the te reo maori groups that I'm part of there's this idea of reinforcing maori values when you're debating and there's been some pretty big debates whether it's political or anything around the use of te reo and people are quite frank 
Um, but like you say, there are admins there, not a computer. Um, when anything gets too heated, it's about, okay, just to double check everybody, return to those those uh, values of manaki and aroha and not whakaiti, so not putting people down, but respecting the comment and replying in, in kind when you're having those sorts of debates. So I think Megan, having read the, the Facebook page comments for a, for a job, is probably thinking, you're unrealistic here. People yeah. are... Ah, there is a side to human nature that's nasty, and we know that's true. But, but I'm with Dean. I think that if you if you don't return the responsibility for civilized discourse to the participants of the discourse, then you're really giving human nature a free reign to not <laughs> mind its manners. But what are the norms around communication, though? If we think about how, for example, we keep hearing the millennial generation and how attached they are to all the devices they've got at the moment, their communication norms are quite different from, for example, mine. So they will say things, post things that I think, nah, it's objectionable. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, Yeah, that'll cause harm, hurt or offence. And we debate this in class. So we might have new norms around communicating. What I would like to see, I think, is the platforms take some responsibility for the space that they're creating. Yeah. So... Twitter has talked a lot about wanting to end abuse on Twitter, but has actually done very little concrete things. So I think you have to attack it in both ways. You have to say to people, be nicer, read kindly, treat people with respect, don't yell at people, all of those things. But I think the platforms have a responsibility to create the technology in a way that those things are a bit easier. Um, And there are any number of women and people of colour and uh, LGBT people who are getting horrendous amounts of abuse and and the and the platform is not doing anything to do that. So yes, absolutely people should be better, but these companies have created these spaces whereby they do better when there's outrage, because the more outrage there is, the more traffic there is, and they're putting oftentimes quite vulnerable people into hurtful positions. I guess that's part of, um, I was thinking about how the platforms are constructed because how they're constructed often determines how we can actually communicate and there's not a lot of ownership I don't think from the, you know, on our side, the communicator's side on how we can actually communicate because we are largely bounded by the platform's construction. I would hope that would change. I would hope that maybe in 50 years time we can construct how we would wish to communicate using whatever technology we have available to us, not the other way around as it is at the moment. That means that the network operators and platform owners um, might not exist or may need to morph into something far more respectful or far more communicator-driven, I guess. That's a big ask for a platform such as Facebook, and I don't see anything from Zuckerberg yet (laughs) <laughs> where he's telling us he's moving in that direction. He's just adding features. Yeah. But I see what time. you mean. Like you're, you're wanting them to take some sort of social responsibility for the space that they've created. Hmm, I think I think that's a wonderful approach. Uh, I have been on Twitter since 2009. I hear about these pylons, but I really can't think of a single time where anyone's offended me on Twitter, you know. People talk about the the Twitter attacks, but who are you hanging out with? Who are you following? And what conversations are you having? Twitter, for me, is a professional tool, so I use it for political, journalistic, professional reasons, um, and I'm pretty political. I don't... I mean, it is renowned as a sort of echo chamber. Maybe there's nobody following me who disagrees with me. I doubt that very much. 
uh, I can say some things that most people disagree with, to be honest. And I think there are places on Twitter where the old folks, perhaps like me, are having a nice, quiet, civilised conversation. Um, if you've chosen to hang out with ratbags and they're abusing you, uh, I'm not blaming you for the abuse. I'm, I'm blaming them for the abuse. But there are places on social media that aren't awful, abusive, pornographic, you know, and, and in a way that just represents the whole world, doesn't it? Because... You know, there's violence and pornography and hatefulness everywhere, but I don't come across it in my day-to-day life. But, I'll show you mm. some screenshots. When we talk. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, I can't disagree with what you've been saying about Zuckerberg taking some social some responsibility for what goes on on Facebook. Well, so let's talk about uh, Zuckerberg and uh, and the news. Mm. Um, and you know, Facebook has this uh, Facebook and and the news uh, group that they're trying to do better about this. Mm. Um, as a professional journalist, uh, I'm very concerned about the role that social media is playing in the way that people get their news. Oh yes. Oh look, it's. I think it's the question of our time. Uh, I'm a journalist myself, or former journalist, teach journalism now. I think this is the question that we have to wrestle with more than anything else. Um, the large media companies around the world are, seem to be in constant negotiation with Facebook at the moment uh, about whether their brands should appear on the feed because the danger, of course, is that all news looks like Facebook news and then you really can't tell what's fake news and what isn't. Um, you know, I'm, I am perhaps not of the generation quite where everything, all my news comes through Facebook. To be honest, I'm more on the RNZ uh, webpage than anywhere else at the moment. Um, uh, and I'm a constant RNZ listener and I read The Herald and I also go to Facebook and Twitter for the other stuff, if you like. I don't think that AI and computers can balance everything perfectly. They're a start because if a story's already been identified as false, it's going to be pretty easy for computers to label it as false. And so when it comes up in your uh, feed, there's already talks about whether your Facebook feed should say, nah, this article is probably 60% true. Well, I don't want to read something that's 60% true. I want to read something that's 99 or 100% true. What's truth? That's a whole other yeah, argument. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. That's a whole other <laughs> argument. And we are, I think, dividing as a society into camps who see truth differently. And and one thing that we are seeing a lot of is people saying, oh, fake news, when it's not fake news, it's just a story they don't like. That's absolutely right. And uh, I'll just finish off by saying, if Donald Trump's told you it's fake news, you can almost certainly believe that it isn't fake news. But there is fake news out there, and it does matter. If we think about the stories that we don't like, though, and the stories that we do like, is that any different from, say, gossiping years and years and years ago? Because if I think about how we used to communicate, we love to gossip. And so news, exactly, and news comes out of sometimes, doesn't it, um, gossip. And gossiping. So news comes Sometimes out of gossip, but then needs verified. Exactly. Yes, yes. Prove that it's true. And perhaps that's the issue. So maybe we have um, social news reporters who are able to be active on social, who are kind of verifiable sources or trusted sources. Well, one of the things you see a lot Could now in, um, in uh, breaking news situations, a bombing or something like that, is more and more you see news outlets, credible news outlets saying, we're not going to report any old tweet that we see. So what often happened would be that there'd be this rush or this this video that's shown up on Twitter. Mm. And now more and more people are saying, do you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to verify it. We're going to make sure it's true before we actually publish it to you. So yes, it might feel like we're a bit slower than Twitter, but actually, uh, or, or Facebook or, or wherever you're getting this information, but we're going to check that it's right first. Okay. Well, could we have a citizen journalists though as well? I, I don't know. I quite like that term. I don't know how that would work, but maybe 
we do have people who are quite trusted but who are not formally trained who might be feeding, for example, a true story to you, but it's your job, Megan, to shape that up for the reader so the person can't really um, look at it as critically as you would, but it's true. I don't know. How I mean, that work? yes, you absolutely can have that, but I mean that's that's a source essentially. Yeah. Um, but okay. you, st- we still have to verify. The journalist still has to verify that what that person is saying is in fact true. Yes. Um, so essentially, you just get into a place where you just have lots and lots of sources, which is what social media has done for journalists. It's in in some ways, it's been a massive boon for that. It's just that it's just that it's complicated things incredibly, hasn't exactly. it? Exactly. And and we now teach um, UGC user generated content verification, and there are techniques and online methods. Um, there was a very famous one during the Iranian. Uh, riots of, I don't know, close to 10 years ago now, uh, there was a video going around of a a protester being bundled into the boot of a car by two secret agent-looking dudes. Turns out it wasn't in Iran, it wasn't at the time, it was three years before and in a completely different part of the Middle East, but it was inserted in that as an inflammatory uh, and sort of incendiary social media post. Um, Those kind of hugely important and influential moments have led to the development of quite a lot of verification tools uh, we have verification handbooks. We have uh, online um, sort of image, reverse search images, so you can see where the image first appeared on the internet. There are all, all sorts of a growing number of these verification tools, and they're incredibly important, and they have complicated the job of the journalist hugely because, you know, you now really can't trust what comes in. You really have to check everything unless you interviewed them yourself. And ultimately, it comes down to to sort of bring it back to communication, to interpersonal communication, comes back to talking to a person and asking a question and yeah. figuring out whether or not you trust what they have to say, Yeah, which is what we're meant to do. <laughs> that human side, that, that sort of do I trust this person, it, it's almost hard to explain why. I mean, today's the first day I've met Megan, I would trust her with my life. But I... I, and you guys. You shouldn't. <laughs> but, 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 you know, you do. I think this is part of the problem with social media. And, and we don't know how, what the person meant because we've lost 75% of the body cues. We, we talked about this already. But but I think that we have to get back, as Megan says, to just talking to people, eye contact, body language, just reconnect on a human level. And I don't think it matters that, that we then spend 10 hours on Facebook as long as we're also doing the other stuff. Dean, a bit more cordial. No, I was just, as I was listening to the conversation, I was thinking as a uh, user of Facebook and Twitter and jumping on and just um, some of the responsibility, I mean, like you said, you talked about um, educating the younger generation so that when they get older, it's it's almost common sense to look at and not taking everything you see on Facebook at face value. Exactly. You know, it's um, when I see, because I, I do use Facebook for the main part of my news and then jump on the Herald or whatever too. You're but a bit I, younger you're, than me. You're I, always looking at everything and then you got you click on the link and it's like, okay, who's, I, I don't, I've never heard of this website or paper, so I'll I'll check the Herald if they're talking about it or news so that's, and, that's what some so, people are quite scared about because Facebook was looking for a while to suck all the news brands into it so you just saw Facebook news no matter who wrote yeah, it. Yeah, see. Mm. See, that for me is, yeah. is significantly oh, yeah. dangerous that, and democratic too. That's yeah. up to the big media brands however they're going to look, I think, in 50 years' time to um, not protect Ooh, will their there patch. Still be big there media might brands. not be. Maybe yeah. they have to morph as well and, yeah. you know. Yeah, but going back to what you said about like trusting someone and taking their word I'm like is it really about like trusting them 
when it's a, a piece of, you know, journal, I'm not a journalist, but you're when you're writing a piece, you're taking their word at... We have a saying in, in journalism, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. <laughs> right? so, so I'm not suggesting in any way that a gut feeling is enough to, to, to know whether something's true because I trust this person, but it's enough to make me go away and verify it, um, yeah. I think. Uh, but I, I guess the point I was trying to make was just that so much of trust and positive and helpful communication involves human interaction, not just sending emails. Yeah. Yeah. We discussed at the end of the... Uh, last episode, the uh, Future of Work episode, that we might be able to get rid of emails in the next... Uh... Oh, I'd love that. Right? <laughs> yes, untether from a uh, keyboard. Sitting, yes. I'm sitting here today worry, in the RNZ studio yes. worrying about my inbox. Yes. And on that note, I'm going to let you go and check your inbox. <laughs> if anything comes out of the series of great ideas, it would be that email is the devil and we should try and get rid of it. My thanks to Dr Kate Jones, Greg Trudwell and Dean, Dr Dean Mahuta. Great Ideas is made in collaboration with AUT, our sound engineer with Rangi Pawak, and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. I'm Megan Whelan. You can find more great RNZ podcasts at rnz.co.nz, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your listening fun. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.